Well, we've reached the end of the book of Ezra, and we're going to finish working through it today, so I'm going to encourage you to keep your Bible open to Ezra 9 if you've kept it open, and if you've closed it, open it back up or find it on your phone, however you're reading it today. Uh, Let me begin with a story. Uh, After I graduated from college in Chicago, I came back here to Lincoln, where I'd grown up, and I was working a laundry delivery uh, job for a while, driving a truck. It was a really fun job. I enjoyed it. Um, And so it was floor mats, uniforms, uh, towels, that kind of thing. And I remember as I was being trained in that first month, uh, the the guy who was training me, one of my coworkers, uh, we went out to, we were doing the small town route. That's what I had. And we go out to a smaller town and uh, went into a manufacturing plant there to deliver the floor mats. It takes about 10 or 15 minutes to walk around. And as we're walking around about the second or third week on the job, second or third time we've been there then, he looks at me and he's like, you know, I just can't figure out what this place makes. I see all these boxes around the place, but I never see them put anything in the boxes. And as we're standing in the lobby, when he says this, and I see big, huge picture of trees, big, huge picture of logging truck, big, huge picture of what appears to be paper manufacturing going on, fiber is in the name of the company, and there's a display table of all kinds of various sizes of boxes and shapes. And I said, I think it's a box factory. Ah, that makes sense, right? So the the evidence was there, but missing the point of what should have been obvious is what was going on. Now, Ezra, as we've read through the whole thing now, is a book of second chances, um, and there's a lot of things that are before them where they're given this second chance, and then some, and then some, and then some over the course of about 90 years, and they keep running the risk of moving, of missing the point of having all the evidence of God's work around them and yet still missing what God is trying to do with them in this moment. So if we review kind of uh, just quick overview to, as we finish Ezra today, let's just, just kind of remember where they've been given second chances and where they took the opportunity and were faithful and where they missed the mark. So back in chapter 1, King Cyrus uh, gives them the chance to come back to the land because these are people who had been exiled because of rank disobedience generation upon generation. Uh, It was systemic. It was all throughout. And so a number of people were exiled after they were conquered. Um, And now, uh, under the new ruler, they're allowed to return from exile. In chapters 2 and 3, they're given the chance to—the reason to return is to rebuild the temple— so they're given the chance to rebuild the temple, and uh, they're given the, the means, they're given the, the authorization by the king, and even within their own leadership. Um, so they have everything they need to do it, but they've got some fear. Uh, there's some opposition at ground level, but they're still working on it, and they celebrate that. But then by chapters 4 and 5, they're stopped from the temple rebuilding. Through a number of different means, they're just prevented from continuing on. And, and what they end up doing at that point is that they, uh, they kind of go to building their own homes and forsake building the temple, which was the reason they were allowed this second chance in the first place. And you can read about that in the book of Haggai, actually, that they kind of give up on the project. And finally, they're, they're pushed back into it by the prophets who God sends. By chapter 6, then they've been authorized by the newest king to rebuild the temple uh, again, and so they, they round that out by the completion of the temple. They round it out with dedication and with celebration. The job is done. It's not as grand as the original temple, but they've completed the job that they were called to do. 
Now, there's about a 60-year window between chapter 6 and 7, and we, we looked two weeks ago at chapter 7 and chapter 8, which go together. And something happens in that period of time. We're not given all the information of that, but, but we may note and, and think through what happens when uh, a capital campaign finishes, at, uh, whether it's a business, um, a hospital, a church. You know, you've taken all this time to say, we're going to build something, we're going to gather the money and put it together, and then once the building is put together and complete, the enthusiasm goes down because people take for granted what's there. So if the pledges weren't paid up by the time the building goes up, it's really hard to get them after the fact quite often because people are just less excited. We take it for granted. That appears to be the kind of mentality that's probably gone on here between in those 60 years. So by chapter 7 and 8, we're introduced to Ezra, the title character of the book, uh, who comes and uh, he comes with a new wave of about 5,000 people, uh, faithful people from the land again. Uh, there's a new sense of covenant renewal that comes with them. The hand of the Lord was on them as they came back. And you can kind of sense this, this taking up the second chance anew with a new generation, basically. But then by verse, chapters 9 and 10, we encountered the discovery of some problems. And it appears that in that 60-year time, where they started taking some things for granted, um, they're in danger of squandering a second chance from God again. And so this returns us to a point that we've come to over and over and over again that we better get from the book of Ezra. It's on the screen, never squander a second chance from God. God is in the business of giving them. We should not squander those moments. Let's go to Ezra then, and let's look at 9... Chapter 9, starting at verses 1 and 2. We just heard it in the scripture reading, so I'm not going to read everything in chapter 9 again. You don't have to worry about that. We'll bring some stuff from chapter 10 into, but let's, let's refresh what we heard here. Verses, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, so this is after Ezra and, and the group comes back to Jerusalem and they've done some sacrifice. Um, they've been, the hand of the Lord has been on them the whole time. There's been great faithfulness. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. Like those of thee, and keep these all in mind, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race uh, with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. So they gave the authorization to do this. So hear that. And now let's just consider this. There's this intermarriage thing going on, and that seems to be a problem. But come on. We're a modern people. We're tolerant, a pluralistic society. Right? We're, we're egalitarian about ideas. And, and that pluralism means that all religions can live on the same plane as, as equal and valid. Faith is a private conviction, right? Are you buying any of this yet? I'm not, I'm not believing this. It's, of course, there's something important about tolerance, and there's something important about being a pluralistic society. We know we live in that, but that doesn't mean everything's equal in value. Certainly not every idea is equal in value. Faith is not a private conviction specifically. 
That's a lie that we buy in our culture. Faith is personal, but it's actually a very public thing. And in fact, if somebody tells you, well, why don't you just keep your faith private? They're making a public faith statement to tell you to keep it private. Work with that. The story we're told sometimes in our modern culture looks at something like this, and I prepare you with this because what the instruction given here to take care of the problem of Ezra 9 and 10, it comes across to our modern ears as offensive if we're not prepared for what's actually going on here. Let's look at Ezra's response. So the people have intermarried, and that's a problem. Verse 3 will come up on the screen here. You can follow along. Ezra says, when I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak. That's a, a sign of grieving to tear your clothes like that. I pulled my hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. If somebody was grieving often in the days of Ezra, you'd shave your head. Is something that people could do to show that you're grieving after you've torn your clothes and done all that stuff. He's cutting to the chase and just yanking is what he's doing. He's so appalled. He, then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Ezra is obviously offended by what's happened, but not in the same way I think uh, many of us might have concerns about this text on a first read and what happens. Ezra is offended because of the holiness of God is why. They're not living faithfully to God and how God has called them to operate in the world as his covenant people. And you can see then the people's response comes in chapter 10. So let's go there, chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. Ezra's offended. He, he prays that brilliant prayer. He tells them that he's offended. And in verse 2 of chapter 10, it says, Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We've been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there's still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. So they end up separating themselves from the wives and children that they've taken and that they've created in this unfaithfulness. And if you keep reading down in chapter 10, about verse 15, you see that two people opposed this. Everybody else that took a foreign wife was in favor of it and followed through. There were only two that opposed, Jonathan and Jeshiah, and then two Levites who supported them. So four total people opposed what was going on. And I still want to hang on this offensive part of this and the difficulty of this, because let's, just, let's not kid ourselves what they did in order to be faithful was not easy. It was probably painful for everybody involved. And now it's affected innocent lives, the children, who probably didn't ask for this in the first place because of their unfaithfulness. So I want us to make sure that we recognize that. I'm not suggesting any of this is easy to do. But what's really interesting to me, uh, going with the, still the, the modern sensibility piece, uh, the president and general secretary of the National Council of Churches wrote a blog post about this fairly recently, um, and I don't agree with him, but I think it's worth picking this out just so we can, can hear 
how this comes across sometimes in the first place and then get to the point. So he writes, this is Jim Winkler is his name, he writes, Ezra arrives in Jerusalem and learns the Jews are living among the people of the land with their abominations. And they have married some of them, had children, and raised families so that the holy seed had mixed itself with the peoples of the land. Ezra demands that they send these families away. This is Jim Winkler still writing, not me. That's right. He insists they force their own spouses and children to leave. Despite all efforts to spin these verses, they still possess unbearable cruelty, he writes. Only Jonathan and Jeziah opposed this, and Meshulam and Sabathea, the Levites, supported them. And Winkler writes, These are my heroes in the book of Ezra. Their opposition was such that we know of it to this day, and I am grateful for it. So if we understand the context, but then take his words, he just said, the unfaithful people to God are my heroes. Do you hear that? At first it seems offensive, but we have to be careful that we understand exactly what's going on and exactly the instructions that people had and exactly the unfaithfulness that they followed. It said in uh, Ezra's prayer that the prophets had already warned them about not doing this. Can I go back a little further? These won't come up on the screen, but just listen. You remember all the ites I mentioned? Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, all those mentioned in there. Back in Exodus 34, before they entered the land, they were warned about those very people. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you're going, or they will be a snare among you. Deuteronomy 7, 3, and 4, about those same groupings of people. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me and serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Judges 3, 5, and 6, now they're in the land. It says the Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. And then, of course, we have Ezra, who says the prophets also mentioned all of this numerous times. The people were warned and warned and warned and warned. And by the way, they had kings within their own uh, history, Solomon chief among them, who had not heeded this and paid the price and we're reminded that those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. That's what they're doing. They're in danger of squandering their second chance in a big way again. And so while we may be, find it incredibly difficult what they have to do in order to be faithful again as God's covenant people, let's recognize this truth that's the bottom of the screen here, that ignoring God's character and commands is costly. I mean, not only do you see an example here where it costs them dearly to ignore what was clearly part of their own history and a problem and what sent them into exile in the first place. Now God's given them a second chance and they're trying it again. Of course, we can also see that, that ignoring God's character and commands can be costly We've all been part and parcel of that too. That's why Jesus Christ, that's why God sent his only son. It cost a lot to fix the damage of sin. As we move forward from this point, 
I want to recognize, uh, I want to take Ezra's prayer and just pick out a couple parts of it that are really, I think, worth noting. The whole thing's quite great. I, I actually recommend that you go and pray it this afternoon. But I want to pick out a couple things in Ezra's prayer about repentance uh, and turning. And I want to aim it towards uh, something for us today regarding our salvation in Jesus Christ, because that is our great second chance. And some of us have taken up God on that second chance, and we've said yes to Jesus Christ, and there's still a possibility that you can squander that opportunity. And some of us might be sitting in the room, and we've never said yes to Jesus Christ, and so that second chance still is before us. In either camp, let's hear what Ezra has to say to us today to teach us how to turn towards God and not squander that second chance. The first thing I want to point out is that uh, is Ezra 9, 6 is where we're going to go. And, the, and what I want to say is that we need to allow sin or allow shame and guilt to be a teacher. So let's hear Ezra, Ezra 9, 6, where Ezra prays. He says, I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. That's how he starts. How he finishes the prayer, verse 15, uh, we can see why he would be ashamed. Verse 15 says, Lord, the God of Israel, you are, can you see that word? Righteous. Can you say it with me? Righteous. Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. I'm ashamed because we're not that. We're not even close. We're not measuring up. And a whole lot of our people aren't even trying. I'm ashamed is what he's saying. I would suggest that the weight of shame and guilt, we're in a culture that tries to avoid those two things and takes great pains to avoid those two things. We'll try and rename our sins as something else uh, in order to not feel guilty. But shame and guilt have a function. Uh, God put them there so that we would actually feel the need to turn from what's wrong. And so we need to let them be teachers in that sense. Now, I would suggest the best thing for all of us is to not sin in the first place. Anybody want to be on board with that plan? I'd like to this morning. But I guarantee all of us in this room will sin after this worship service. It's the reality of, of life, unfortunately. So we need to allow the guilt and shame that come along with that to teach us to actually come back to the one who can forgive us and allow us to have a second chance. Proverbs 28, 13 uh, states... Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Uh, around our house, uh, at least the younger, I have three kids, the younger two still sometimes, um, they don't always flush the toilet when they're done. And uh, so if you remember when we were under water restrictions, and we couldn't flush the toilet for a couple days unless you absolutely needed to. I had two kids that had been preparing for that day for a long time. <laughs> and we're still living in it sometimes. And so you can sometimes ask, hey, who forgot to, you know, do the last thing on the checklist here? And you'll get, not me, not me. Well, okay, it was somebody, right? And the astute parent can probably figure it out. Um, but when it comes to our sin, we can't really do that same thing and say, well, it wasn't me, God. It wasn't me. I'm not really feeling guilt and shame from this because God knows. 
We can't hide this from God. By the way, if you're mildly offended at me using a toilet example when it comes to sin, Scripture does it, uh, sin is detestable in God's sight. God knows. So it doesn't do any good to conceal the wrong that we've done, the unrighteousness that doesn't line up to who God is. Now, it's better to confess it and get right with God. Let's go on to verse 8 of chapter 9. Ezra says, But now for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. A remnant, simply put, is a survivor. It's one who's been delivered. If you want to put it another way, it's one who is saved. That's the remnant. And you can see in Ezra, those who stood in opposition to God remained in bondage. That's what Ezra is saying. By their shame, by their guilt, by the sin that brought all those things on, they remained in bondage. They're not really acting as the remnant. They're acting as the bondage still, the unsaved. Furthermore, though, if you look a little bit deeper at then the attitude of a people who would do that, who would disregard uh, God and be unfaithful to God in this way, not only then are they acting in bondage, but they look really ungrateful to the God who's given them everything they have and brought them back to the land and all the material that they need in order to build the temple, and now they're ignoring all of that. So it could lead us to a simple question this morning. Are you grateful for God's work in your life? Or are you like some of these people in the text? You're always wishing God would do more. Not grateful for what God has done. You're ungrateful rather than grateful. You're forgetful. You're worried, even entitled. Taking for granted the good that God has given rather than being grateful for what God has given and continues to do. In 1 Peter 1, 13, Peter gives these words to the believers. He says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you are the remnant. You're the saved. Not saved to do what you want, a free agent just out and about, but saved to do what God wills. If we're that kind of a people, then we need to be a grateful people. And that's what acting like a survivor looks like. If you're no longer the bonded, but the saved. You're grateful for what God has done and will continue to do. My uh, grandparents, I was reflecting on this over the last couple days after I put this all together. My grandparents, uh, my grandfather uh, didn't eat cheese for most of his life because he ate so much of it during the Great Depression. Couldn't stand it after that. My grandma, because of the Great Depression, saved every scrap of paper ever in her life. But they were people of contentment in their life, recognizing what they had as enough. 
Why? Because they never forgot the depression and the deprivation that came with that. It changed who they were. They were grateful for what they had, and they lived that way. Well, that's what the remnant is supposed to be, the saved. We're supposed to be grateful for what we have and live that same way. If we belong to Jesus as the remnant, we're the grateful. Let's look at one last part of Ezra 9, verse 9. And let's look at three things that he picks out as sort of our, how to round this out, three marks of God's mercy that we would see. Verse 9, Ezra says, Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. So let's start with God is kind. This is evident all throughout the book of Ezra, I believe. And the whole fact of God allowing them to return is God's kindness in action because they had stepped all over God's kindness and yet God gives them the second chance. He gives them the chance to learn and return to the land. And in doing that, God gives them, again, the commands of how to live. God gives them the means in, in how to do what he's called them to do, and then God gives them the power to actually live it out. In very specific cases, he gave them the command to come back and, and put the temple back together. That way they can follow the law fully. He gave them the means to do it, and then he gives them the power to actually follow it through uh, in the text. You can see that happen, especially Ezra's life is a great example of that specifically. Through Jesus, we get the same thing. Those things aren't simply given to Ezra. We have the commands of how to live. Love God, love others. A new command I give to you, love as I have loved you. We get those commands from Jesus. We also have the means to do it, a people and God's word itself, so that we can live it out and continue to understand what that means. Obviously, we have the example of Jesus, not simply the sacrifice that transforms us, but it also illustrates to us what we're supposed to become. But then we also get the Holy Spirit as the power to become that because we can't do it on our own. We can only do it by God's power to become righteous in that way. So we have the command, the means, and the power the same way that God gave it in the days of Ezra. God is kind to give us those things. We also can see God grants new life. Failure to thrive is that uh, instance or that condition where a child is born as a baby, but it just doesn't grow. For whatever reason or reasons, it's just not gaining weight and meeting the benchmarks that should come within the first few weeks or even months of life. How often do we experience failure to thrive in our own spiritual life? In our own relationship with God? where we have the resources, and they're even being given to us, but the growth just isn't happening for some reason. There are all kinds of different reasons why, but, but a couple that we should be alert to is we, we might have made a commitment at camp, we might have made a commitment at church, any of those sorts of things to Jesus Christ. We've read some verses, but there's never really been, we've never really taken up the challenge. We've been comforted, but not challenged to become like Jesus. Or, as I think you see in Ezra, you have a people 
uh, and, and particularly the response to Ezra I read this morning, we have a people who, when they encounter God's holiness, sometimes they're pitting it against other attributes. I think this is why I shared the piece from Jim Winkler. I think he's pitting it against other attributes so that we see God's holiness at play, and that's really the, the driving factor and the faithfulness that comes with that that says, okay, what you've done is wrong, and it's going to cost you, but you've got to separate now. But we pit that against something like God's love. But God is loving. How could God ask them to do that? God is kind. How could God ask them to do that? God is good and values life. How could God ask them to do that? And we pit those two things against one another undeservedly. And so what ends up happening, if we're not careful, is our sin seems right and God's right seems cruel. We're, if we're not careful, we're failing to thrive in that way. We're not growing because we're, we're pitting God against himself, and we end up being bonded to the world's view of God and not God's actual character. The last thing, and I'm going to invite the band to come forward as I give you this last point. The last thing that Ezra points out is God provides a wall of protection. Now, the, the wall of protection, there could be, there's actually a wall around Jerusalem that gets built with, within Nehemiah, but the actual language of the wall of protection actually pertains uh, more to something like uh, two different examples, that which would be around a vineyard or that which would be around a sheep pen is really the language that's used there. Um, so in either case, it's going to be a lower wall, not a really tall wall to, to stop an invading army. It's more going to stop foxes um, and other things like that, or even maybe somebody who would have to work hard to jump over a wall. But that, in that sense, you're not completely separate from the outside world because it's not a very tall wall, but you're separate enough uh, that you're under the care of either the person in the watchtower, if it's a vineyard, or the shepherd, if it's a sheep pen. Either one would work. So let's just stick with the sheep example for a moment. For us today, if we're within the wall of protection then, the shepherd is Jesus, if we've taken up that commitment. And of course, then the wall isn't just the thing that gives protection, but the shepherd is going to give us direction. You see, there's a nice little rhyme there. You can write that down. But inside the wall, now let's switch to the vineyard imagery, inside the wall, we're going to be cultivated. We're going to be pruned. We're going to be shaped to become kingdom people, revealing to the world what God's restoration plan is that's happening inside the wall and will eventually be outside the wall. That's what's going on. Any who claim the shepherd or the vine dresser, whichever one you want to take, becomes the remnant, the saved if we've said yes to that great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus. They're saved from the bondage of sin and shame to become God's children. So as we consider all this, as we close out Ezra, ask yourself a few questions. Do I take for granted God's kindness? Or am I grateful for what God's done? Are you living the new life offered through Jesus Christ, God's only Son, the, the cost of our disobedience, ultimately. Consider if, if, is your life walled off because you've created a wall to keep yourself separate from God, or have you experienced the invitation to come in and be renewed and allow the vine dresser to prune and to make you fruitful 
to restore you and remake you, to lead and guide you, to cultivate your soul so that you're more like Christ. Ultimately, when you get down to it, the question is, am I one of the remnant or am I still one of the exiles? Let's pray together. Lord, help us recognize your kindness and your goodness towards us and never pit that against your holiness and your righteousness because you call us to be holy as you are holy. And that's a costly thing. And God, we know that pruning and trimming, those are going to take something from us as well. But God, let us not be concerned about the loss that we could experience, but the gain that we have through you and your son, Jesus Christ. That the fruit that we would bear would be fruit that pleases you and not fruit that offends. Lord, for those of us who don't know your son, Jesus Christ, would you send your spirit right now so that they could experience new life through your son? And God, for those that feel like they're squandering that second chance this morning, but they've said yes to your son, Jesus, they feel failure to thrive, will you speak directly to them this morning? Because God, we know that you will when we call on you. Will you make it abundantly clear the direction that you give for even just the smallest next step so that growth happens, that we could all be called the remnant, the saved? God, we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.